Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Bookshop Podcast. I'm Mandy Jackson Beverly. Join me as I speak with authors and other guests who specialize in subjects dear to my heart, the humanities and our environment. To help the show reach more people, please consider sharing with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 121. Christopher Feenan has been involved in the fight against censorship for 35 years. He is executive director of the National Coalition Against Censorship and the former president of the American Booksellers Foundation for Free Expression. After working as a newspaper reporter, he studied American history at Columbia University, where he received his PhD. He is the author of Alfred E. Smith, The Happy Warrior, Drunks and American History, and From the Palmer Raids to the Patriot Act, A History of the Fight for Free Speech in America, winner of the American Library Association's Eli M. Obler Award. His new book, How Free Speech Saved Democracy, The Untold History of How the First Amendment Became an Essential Tool for Securing Liberty and Social Justice is out April 26, 2022. Hi, Christopher, and welcome to the show. Hi, Mandy. Thank you very much for the invitation. My pleasure. And thank you for all the work you do to fight against censorship. Chris, you worked as a newspaper reporter before studying American history at Columbia University. Did your background in journalism act as fodder for your interest in censorship? It certainly contributed. And in the mid-70s, when I graduated from college, everybody who was studying journalism, you know, wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein. And that, that was me. But I have to say my background probably predisposed me to it. My father uh, was in radio. He, um, he programmed the first talk radio in Denver. And my mother was on the board of the ACLU of Colorado. So that, that tells you, I'm, I don't know what the civil liberties version of a red diaper baby is, but I was one of those. <laughs> so were you born and raised in Colorado? I was actually born in Cleveland. Um, my father, when my father's career was started there, and um, we moved to Denver when I was about seven. And how did you become involved with the National Coalition Against Censorship? And can you explain how the NCAC works, please? Yeah. So um, NCAC is a single uh, nonprofit. We have multiple, we have over 50 participating organizations, national nonprofits, from a wide range of um, uh, areas, arts, education, other anti-censorship groups. So, and the way I got involved was that when my uh, coursework in graduate school was done, I was looking for a job and there was a want ad in the New York Times, just like the Times advertised for somebody to work for a trade, First Amendment Trade Association. So I worked for that group for many years uh, throughout the 80s, which were very active um, on censorship issues, and ultimately ended up working for one of the nonprofits, the American Booksellers Association, that belonged to that group. Later, I became the president of the American Booksellers Foundation for Free Expression, and then I served on the board of NCAC and was chair for a while. And when the executive director of NCAC left, 
there was this opportunity for me and, um, and I took it. Now, we're living in a time in the United States where there is a lot of hate-filled speech. And quite often, I'll hear the argument, well, I'm all for free expression and free speech, but the hate-filled rhetoric is frightening. Is there a tipping point when free expression becomes dangerous, particularly in a country where hate and lie-filled speech is prevalent and in some cases encouraged? For example, anti-vaxxers, white supremacy, hate-filled crimes... What are your thoughts on this? Well, the problem with hate speech, of course, is um, is a serious one. And I think that it's a difficult issue for advocates for free speech, but because we all feel the same way. We all feel the threat. We know the danger. Unfortunately, there aren't too many. Well, we take a step back and say, I think that most people would agree we don't want the government making a decision about what is hate speech and what isn't hate speech, because that can change with the party in power. So it really, and mostly focuses around social media. And social media, of course, um, has its own, uh, the companies have their own First Amendment right. And uh, in recent years, have been under increasing pressure to to apply some censorship to, to what goes out through their companies. That doesn't work really well either. First of all, the amount of hate speech is so, you know, enormous and so prevalent that um, it's very difficult for them to get their hands around the problem. And when they do, they often over censor. They take things out that really aren't hate speech, but are recognized that way by the algorithms that they've created because human moderation just can't keep up. So the classic um, response of civil libertarians to the problem of hate speech is to argue that we don't have to sit on our hands and accept it. Uh, we're not powerless against hate speech. We can speak out. We can use counter speech, um, and we should use counter speech. We should uh, expose the lies. We should, you know, damn the authors. But the the question of actually suppressing them raises much much larger questions and. Uh, so that's, that's pretty much our, our position. Your words give clarity to the reasoning behind why we do not want the government telling us what we can say or can't say or what we can and can't write about or, for that matter, paint either. Now, in the opening letter in your upcoming book, How Free Speech Saved Democracy, you write, quote, as the fight for fairness and justice continues, we must remember that free speech is not an obstacle to change. It is the way we address our problems, end quote. Can you expand on this idea? Sure. In, in our time, it is easy to forget that free speech in this country was, um, was not common for many, many years, for the first century and a half, in fact. Of American history. There was extensive censorship by the government. There were violent efforts to suppress speech um, on the part of private parties and government that uh, people considered dangerous. For example, abolitionism. You know, the, the people who went out, the earliest advocates of the ending of slavery, faced tremendous pressure um, and violent attacks. Um, for advocating uh, for advocating its abolition, and the South and its defenders in the North argued that you know this was hate speech. This was dangerous speech that would incite you know rebellion and slave revolts and uh, 
So many of the uh, important reforms that were fought for in the 19th century faced censorship. The, uh, the women's movement faced censorship. The, the suffragists were actually thrown in jail um, for picketing the White House and um, labor, uh, labor organizers in a, in a country that did not recognize the right, to, uh, the right to strike or organize unions found their meetings broken up by the uh, state militia, their strikes broken, their picketing broken. You know, they fought into the 1930s before they had any uh, significant right to advocate for, you know, a living wage. The arts weren't free. From the 1870s on, um, there was a federal obscenity law that allowed for the suppression of birth control information. So the fact that these reforms were actually achieved against all that pressure was as a result of, of the, the willingness of the people, in many cases, the martyrs who fought for them and fought for the right to free speech. And we've forgotten, I think, uh, in the current climate that free speech was a progressive cause. And I believe it still is a progressive cause. I believe the effort to change society still faces enormous pressures. And we've seen it most recently in efforts to suppress books about race um, and sexual identity. Um, these are all censorship fights. And um, I think it's helping, actually, to focus people on, you know, the enduring importance of free speech for, you know, achieving equality in our society. And I want to encourage listeners to go onto the NCAC website because I spent quite a long time on it. It's a fabulous site. And one of the pages that grabbed my attention was the youth censorship page. I only saw about one or two states that were free of any form of youth censorship over the last few years. To me, that was shocking. I could not believe it. And this made me wonder, have you seen an increase or decrease in youth censorship over the past decade? Well, over the past decade, I would say, um, I, I would say not until recently, not really until last fall. You know, we've had the, the 80s were um, the previous peak uh, in book censorship. And at that time, the American Library Association was reporting as you know, many as a thousand challenges a year. Wow, that's a lot of books. Yeah. Fortunately, um, as a result of efforts to fight that, the number was ultimately um, reduced to the point where maybe three or 400 challenges a year that are reported. There are probably many more. Uh, there are undoubtedly many more, but we these are what uh, the ALA can document. What happened beginning in September of last year is another huge spike in censorship that's being driven by conservative politicians and um, activists who think they have found an issue in so-called parental rights that will help them win elections and um, take control of, you know, not just legislatures, but school boards. So that uh, we are at this point, um, ALA is reporting as many as five challenges a day. At that rate, if it continues, you know, there's a good chance we're going to exceed the peak of the 1980s. Yeah, mixing politics and education is never a good thing, I don't think. But what you said is interesting because I do remember on that graph on the Youth Sensitive page, in the Who Brought Up This Complaint column, it's either the school or the parents. So that kind of goes with what you're saying. It just is incredibly sad and almost mind-boggling that this is going on in 2022. 
you know, there is some good news about this. It's not like they don't have anything to react to. The books that are used in schools, many schools, have become more realistic in treating with the problems of their kids. You know, they're dealing with issues that, you know, before Judy Bloom in the 1980s, you know, were not discussed in schools. And they're dealing with, obviously, the very volatile issue of race, which is particularly uh, superheated right now. You know, there are going to be natural um, conflicts about these issues. The problem is we don't solve the conflict by suppressing the books. We, you know, we address we address the controversy. And, um, you know, some people are advocating censorship instead of discussion. And that in itself is not a good lesson to teach our children. Now, what is the arts and culture project within the NCAC? So we have two major projects. Uh, we have the Youth Free Expression Program, which you know is the source of that youth uh, censorship database that um, you're referring to. Um, we have a Kids Right to Read project under that, in which you know we uh, connect with people at the local level to push back against uh, book challenges. We are, the other major project is the Arts and Culture Project, which is a, we are expanding. Um, it was initially the arts advocacy project dealt mainly with artists and um, museums and uh, curators who were facing controversy uh, over what they were exhibiting. And that is still very much uh, a going concern. But we are increasingly uh, see the need to, to educate more broadly in the cultural sphere about the importance of free speech. I, I'd say that we took it a little for granted until we found that a lot of people who would who had been supporters of free speech in the past were, you know, becoming riveted by issues of race and sex and um, and hate speech. And you know, we really want to get a conversation going, you know, to renew the to underline again the threats that continue to uh, exist to the very things that they support. So that's you know that's kind of the the you know, the broader mission of the culture part of that project. Well, arts and culture is what I'm all about. So that's a great program. It's good to hear about it. Now, under the heading Homeland Security in your new book, you write about the Patriot Act, how it affected libraries and bookshops, and how Bernie Sanders introduced the Freedom to Read Protection Act. What part did the American Library Association, the American Booksellers Association, and the Penn American Center play in rallying support for this act? Yeah, it was a it was a major fight um, from the t you know from nine eleven on. It was uh, you know it was a, a major conflict in Congress. So ALA and ABA uh, were both uh, instrumental in getting Bernie Sanders on uh, a attracting his interest and getting him to introduce legislation called the Freedom to Read Protection Act, which would have put limits on the ability of the government to search customer records for information, you know, that's relevant to terrorism investigations. The Patriot Act really swept that away. You had formerly needed to get a subpoena. The subpoena was challengeable in court. So, you know, that a judge would ultimately decide whether whether that was necessary to turn over. The Patriot Act uh, authorized uh, the government to seize records secretly um, and without recourse to appeal. 
Um, and of course, we were very concerned about that because if people believe that the government can read over their shoulders in that way, they're not going to feel free to buy and borrow the books that they, they really want and they really need. So that fight went on through a good part of uh, uh, you know, the first decade of the, the 21st century and into 2015. And some reforms were adopted. And the Freedom to Read Protection Act itself never passed, but some of the things that we wanted were um, achieved in other legislation. Um, but there's still a significant power. The government still has significant power in terrorism investigation that goes beyond what we think um, is necessary to protect the country. Yeah, I definitely wasn't aware that at that time, if the government wanted to check up for whatever reason on what books I was buying or what books I was taking out of the library, they could do so without a subpoena. Is that still happening? Well, I would say the answer is no. For the most part, it's no. It can still happen, but the the um, kind of the safeguards around that being abused have been improved. For example, one of the reforms was that a bookstore or library records could only be searched if senior executives of the FBI approved the necessity for that, and um, they can't uh, it can't be kept secret. There is now a right to challenge, and I think the good news is that we haven't. We haven't seen any need to to challenge a you know a, a court order you know since since those safeguards were adopted. It's nice to hear something positive coming from all this. Now, what do you see as the most significant threat against Americans to exercise free expression? Well, I think it is government censorship. As I said, you know, it's there's been so much talk about. Um, social media that we've kind of forgotten the power that's, that lies in the hands of state legislators and members of Congress and school board officials. The George Floyd protests reminded us, you know, the acts of police violence during the George Floyd protests was a reminder that the police can um, be a threat to free speech. And I think ultimately we can deal with the, the angry parents. You know, there are policies in place for reviewing books um, in a neutral way um, that are challenged and uh, parents have the right to, to ask for an alternative assignment for their kids. The real threat comes from the people who have power. And that's always been the case. You know, free speech has always butted heads with people in power. And it's why we have to, you know, re retain it as, as such an important tool for fighting for democracy. Yeah, I completely agree. Education is a topic I'm extremely interested in and I care about deeply, especially with younger children. One of my favorite teachers when I was in Australia was, I think it was fourth grade, and she was from India and her name was Miss Valadaris. And the reason I loved her is she told stories about her own country within the classroom and she was able to do that. My husband and I made the decision to homeschool our two sons when they were young until they went into middle school and high school. This decision wasn't based on religion or anything like that. The reasoning had to do more with the curriculum. And this was for preschool through grade five. I was disappointed with the one-sided information given to students. And this was just for little ones. In general, teachers are expected to stay within the curriculum guidelines. And sadly, this doesn't leave room for exploration and imagination and curiosity 
especially nowadays when you have so many different cultures in a classroom. That seems like just a smorgasbord of questions wanting to be answered. I think it's exciting. Right. And, and there, you know, there is tremendous pressure right now on teachers and librarians to, to watch what they teach. And it's frightening them, and it's, a, you know, even if there's no overt act, it, uh, it, it increases the possibility of self-censorship. And, um, but ultimately, that self-censorship takes place because uh, people in power are, are flexing their muscles. Yeah, we can see that happening in Florida right now. Right, absolutely. Yeah, the new bill would place video cameras in classrooms and microphones on teachers. And for their lessons to be recorded? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's this whole issue of surveillance that, um, that, everything that uh, everything that is done in the classroom should be reviewable. And first of all, it's kind of a phony issue because what are school boards except for, um, you know, uh, forums for discussing, you know, what the curriculum is. I think most of these efforts are efforts to intimidate. Uh, and uh, if that's not their effort, that is going to be their effect. Yeah, and I don't think teaching under surveillance allows for creativity. Chris, where can listeners find the National Coalition Against Censorship, and how can they become involved? Well, I invite people to, um, to do what you did. Come look at our uh, come look at our survey or our, our, our map of um, challenges to free speech, which are not only book challenges but also challenges to the rights of students to protest, etc. Um, we are at ncac.org and um, sign up for our newsletter. And um, we do, you know, when we uh, are involved in a fight in a local community, we do use our database to try to activate people to go to school boards, uh, talk, you know, express their, their opinion, defend free speech. So, um, you know, we will, uh, we will keep you in the loop. But I want to warn listeners, if you're anything like me and just love a good website full of information, you need to give yourself a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, but it's great information. Yeah. Okay, one final question. What inspired you to write your new book, How Free Speech Saved Democracy? And what is the publishing date, please? So, you know, it's my effort. I, I, wrote, one pre I wrote a previous book about free speech the growth of free speech in the 20th century. But I wanted to write about free speech from the beginning of the Republic and, uh, and the challenges of the 19th century. And uh, because there's so many brave people, you know, who fought the good fight. And, um, and that wasn't in my first book. So, and I wanted to write a shorter book. I wanted to write a book that was more accessible, um, that maybe could be read by high school students, which was a group that we, um, we really want to reach out to. And ultimately, because I think, as I've said, as I said, that um, people are unaware of how much censorship this country has had through its history and, and how important it was the, the, the victories that were won in the 50s and 60s that are now being challenged, um, how important those were for the way we live today. And the book comes out on April 26th. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It's a high recommend from me. And I particularly enjoyed the stories you chose to put in the book. They brought home not only the importance of free speech, but also the gift they gave us in this era that we can practice it. Chris, thank you so much for being a guest on the Bookshop Podcast. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Mandy. This, is, this has been a big help, and I appreciate your, your giving me your audience for a half hour. 
Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly. And check out my website at MandyJacksonBeverly.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the coffee fund, go to thebookshoppodcast.brassprout.com, click on the little orange heart in the right-hand corner of the page, and you can donate using PayPal. Your contributions support the production and editing costs of the show. For information regarding sponsoring an episode, email thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly.